Open your Bible if you brought one to Ephesians chapter 6. As you do that, I have a, uh, I was going to call it a confession. It's not really a confession. Um, it's more of a, here we go again. I had another one of these experiences this week where I was working on this sermon and um, thought, Lord, we got to slow down again. <laughs> I called Chris, one of the, uh, another pastor here, and just said, Chris, I was planning on preaching Ephesians 6, verse 14 to 20, and I'm going to stop at 16. There's just so much in here, church, that the Lord wants to speak to us. And I'm not going to rush over it. Okay? So what we're going to do is have part two of this, what's turned into a mini-series on spiritual warfare today. And then two weeks from this Sunday, um, I'll be back up here to uh, preach part three. Okay? So a one-week sermon has now effectively turned into a three-week mini-series. I trust that's from the Lord and I'm so thankful we don't have to rush through his word. There are times where the big picture helps, right? There are times when slowing down helps. I think this is one of those. So hold your uh, finger there at Ephesians 6, because before I read from that, I want to read a short selection from a classic work of English literature, namely Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Just pop your hand up. How many of you are hoping your English teacher this fall doesn't make you read Pilgrim's Progress or any other works of classic English literature? Okay. Good. You shouldn't raise your hand because we thank God for works of classic English literature. And in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan describes an encounter, if you haven't read it, that this man named Christian had on the road to the celestial city. And Bunyan writes... But now in this valley of humiliation, poor Christian, this is the protagonist, was hard put to it. For he had gone but a little way before he espied a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him. His name is Apollyon. Then did Christian begin to be afraid and and to cast in his mind whether to go back or to stand his ground. But he considered again that, that he had no armor for his back. And therefore thought that to turn the back to him might give him greater advantage with ease to pierce him with his darts. Therefore he resolved to venture and stand his ground. For thought he, had I no more in mine eye than the saving of my life, it would be the best way to stand. So he went on, and Apollyon met him. Now the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish, and they are his pride. He had wings like a dragon and feet like a bear, and out of his belly came fire and smoke, and his mouth was as the mouth of a lion. When he was come up to Christian, he he beheld him with, with a disdainful countenance and began to question him. Apollyon, whence came you, and whither are you bound? Christian, I am from the city of destruction, which is the place of all evil. And I'm going to the city of Zion. Apollyon, by this I perceive thou art one of my subjects, for all that country is mine. And I'm the prince and god of it. How is it then that that thou hast run away from thy king? Were, Were it not that I hope thou mayest do me more service, I would strike thee now at one blow to the ground. Christian, I was indeed born in your dominions, but your service was hard. And your wages, such as a man could not live on, for the wages of sin is death. Apollyon, there's no prince that will thus lightly lose his subjects, neither will I as yet lose thee. But since thou complainest of thy service and wages, be content to go back. And what our country will afford, I do here promise to give you, Christian. But I have let myself out to another, even to the king of princes. And how can I with fairness go back with thee, Apollyon? And besides, 
O thou destroying Apollyon, to speak truth. I like his service, his wages, his servants, his government, his company, and country better than thine. Therefore, leave off. That was an old English way of saying, shut up. (laughs) To persuade me farther, I am his servant and I will follow him. I find Bunyan's novel riveting as a spiritual allegory and and all the more so because it points to the truth of Scripture. Okay? Listen to me on this point. It might feel like the only enemies you have are angry relatives, angry spouses, abusive co-workers, and the IRS. But, we saw this last Sunday, the Word of God tells a different story. Right? What does the Word of God tell us? It tells us that right now, friends, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, there is a spiritual enemy, a powerful enemy, a wicked enemy, who right now is actively fighting to destroy your soul. He's fighting. He's fighting to keep you distracted from thoughts of eternity, to keep you discouraged in the race of life, and to keep you isolated from anyone or anything that would help you to find your joy in Jesus Christ. He's fighting. And we ignore his fight at great peril, which is why Paul warned us last Sunday, Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And in those verses last Sunday, we, we saw, Paul showed us that, that the Christian life requires the strength of Christ, does it not? And that we have an enemy of our souls who is powerful and cunning, and yet, at the same time, the stratagems of Satan are no match for the power of God. Because through the triumph of his life, of his death, of his resurrection, Jesus Christ has crushed every evil power. Or as, as the hymn we sang last Sunday said, Behold, lo, his doom is what? Sure. His doom is sure. He's crushed, Christ has crushed Satan and every evil power, but they are kicking on the ground. Not to be too graphic. They're crushed, but they're kicking. They're still alive. And they are fighting to their dying breath to lure you out of the kingdom of God and back into the kingdom of darkness. Which is why Paul warns us with our text for today. Look with me at Ephesians 6, verses 13 to 16. Therefore, therefore, in light of all I've said, in light of what Paul has shown us, God has spoken, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil. Christian, I want you to know that this battle we're talking about is a battle that you are fighting right now from a position of spiritual victory. It is. It is. God hasn't commanded you to win the battle. He's not stupid enough to try that. (laughs) Why? Because he knows we're not strong enough to win the battle, okay? But Jesus is, Jesus has, and Jesus equips us through these words to stand firm in the victory that he has won for us through the gospel. Okay, that's what he's saying. 
God's not saying go out and win the battle. He's saying, son, daughter, I have won the battle, and I'm calling you to now what? To stand, to stand, refuse to back down, give in, let go, retreat from the position of victory that I have won for you through the gospel. And he says that for this reason. It's the main point of the sermon last Sunday. Newsflash, it's going to be the main point today and two weeks from now. What is it? Those who stand strong in the strength that God provides will triumph over every evil power. That's the point. Those who stand in the strength that God provides will triumph over every evil power. And Paul helps us do that in the verses I just read. This whole idea of Christian armor is God's way of laying out means divinely ordained means by which we resist the schemes of the devil. And our orders from our King Jesus can be summarized in one word that shows up three times in these verses. All right? Stand. Stand. Stand, stand. The command to stand, as I said a minute ago, is a command to occupy and refuse to abandon this position of victory that Christ has won for us. So let, let's look at some of these spiritual resources that are ours. We're going to go through four of them this morning. Save the rest for later. Okay, first, what's Paul say? Fasten on the belt of truth. The first means by which we stand. Fasten on the belt of truth. Now, now don't, don't think like the belt I'm wearing, okay? Because in Paul's day, Ephesians would have been familiar with this, uh, the Roman soldiers wore what was called a belt, but it was really more like an apron. It was a leather apron that functioned as a sort of base layer under all their armor and, and went down about yay far to, to protect their upper thighs. Okay, but it was a base layer. It was the thing they would put on first over which all the other armor would come, and it protected them in a fast-moving battle. And I think it's a fantastic metaphor because nothing is more foundational to following Christ and resisting the devil than the truth. Nothing. Okay? And Ephesians is filled with references to the truth. L listen to this. In Ephesians 1, okay, if, if you're not familiar with this verse, look back. Ephesians 1, verse 13, what does Paul say? He says he defines the word of truth as what? The gospel of your salvation. In him you also, when you heard what? The word of truth. What's the word of truth, Paul? What's true? The gospel of your salvation. What does that mean, friend? Well, it means that truth isn't something that we discover through science, create through experience, or derive from culture. It is something that is revealed to us by God through his word, at the height of which stands the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's truth. What's true is necessarily I'd say it this way. What's true is necessarily word-centered and gospel-centered. What's true is not what we discover through subjective emotions. What's true is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. As Jesus himself said in John 14, I am the way and the what? The way and the truth and the life. To, to fasten on this belt of truth is to prepare today for spiritual battle by deciding that you will not live your life on the basis of what you feel or other people think, but on the basis of what God says. That's what it means to fasten on the belt of truth. You're going to live, you're going to make all your choices on the basis of what God says is true. Isaiah 45, I the Lord speak the truth. I declare what is right. Psalm 119, the sum of your word is truth. and Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Now in contrast to that, what has Satan been doing from the dawn of creation? Lying. Lying, that's right. He's made a career of lying to the people of God, which Jesus says in John 8 means this. He, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, what's he doing? He speaks out of his own character. For he's a liar and the father of lies. 
Friend, that means that at the root of every sin, every temptation to sin, there is a lie about the truth of who God is and what God has done for us in Christ. At the root of every sin, every temptation to sin, you will find a lie about who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. Okay, which means if we're going to stand, that's the command to stand, if we're going to resist the schemes of the devil, we have to have our minds and our hearts saturated with the truth. And this isn't rocket science, because unless your mind and your heart are saturated with the truth, you're not going to have a clue what's a lie. Okay? I mean, think about it this way. You know, if you ask a first grader, um, you know, what a mole is in chemistry, well, and then you proceed to answer them, they have no way of knowing, are you telling the truth? Are you lying? They just don't know. But, but what happens once you know the truth? Well, then somebody starts talking to you. You hear a voice in your head. You, you read something. You have a sudden desire, an impulse, and you think, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That doesn't line up with this. You can only do that if you know the truth. All right? Fasten on the belt of truth, which is why I can do no better than exhort you with the words of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The first means by which you will stand firm in the position of victory that Christ has won for you through the gospel is to fasten on the belt of truth, which means to decide that you will make all your choices in life, not based on what you feel or what other people think, but on what God has said to you in Jesus Christ. Fasten on that belt. Okay, those, those who stand in the strength God supplies will triumph over every evil power. Here's the second means. Second means, Paul says... Put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Now, we need to be careful here. When you see a word like righteousness in the Bible, that's not an invitation to fill in the blank. (laughs) Really, we never get an invitation to fill in the blank in Scripture. We have to ask ourselves, ask people to help us say, now, what does that mean? What What is the author's intent in saying, put on the breastplate of righteousness. We have to start with that question, not what do I think it means or what do I want it to mean? We start with what clues does Paul give us in this letter as a wise author about what he means by the breastplate of righteousness, okay? Well, thankfully, this isn't the first time that righteousness has shown up in Ephesians. All right, in Ephesians 4.24, we're told what? To put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. What's Paul saying? Well, he's saying that, that righteousness in this case, I think this is a good definition, consists of attitudes or actions that are in keeping with the moral character of God. That's what righteousness is. It's, it's not, well, I think that's right, so it's right. Righteousness. No, no, it's attitudes or actions that are in keeping, that are aligned, that are parallel with the moral character of God. All right? Which means to put on righteousness, this breastplate of righteousness, is to love, for example, as he is loving, to be, to be merciful as he is merciful, or, or to practice justice as he is just. Okay, you, look, you could look at Ephesians 5, 9, where we're commanded to walk as children of the light, What's that mean, Paul? For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. You know, I think in evangelical circles and churches like ours, uh, we often think, when we talk about righteousness, of the justifying righteousness that God credits to our account through faith in Christ. Okay, it's the judicial or forensic righteousness that, that ensures that we are welcome before the throne of God. And that righteousness, that judicial verdict of righteousness that is credited to our account before the throne of God is not something that we have earned or could ever earn. 
That is something that Jesus Christ earned through his perfect obedience and as our substitute gives to us as a gift. You receive that through faith. Don't get hung up on the big words. That's justifying righteousness. All right? We think about that. We talk about that. But there's another kind of righteousness. It's not disconnected, but it's a little different that I think Paul has in view here, okay? And in in the rest of the passages from Ephesians that I quoted, it's, it's not a justifying righteousness so much as it is an ethical righteousness. An ethical righteousness, the, the result of fighting day by day to be holy as God is holy or righteous as God is righteous or, or what the Bible describes elsewhere as the process of sanctification, being sanctified or made more holy. So to connect the dots, when Paul says put on the breastplate of righteousness, he's alerting us to the fact that few defenses are more important to resisting the schemes of the devil than your pursuit of personal holiness. That's what he's saying. Few few defenses are more important than the relentless pursuit of personal holiness. So, So here's what I mean by that, okay, very practically. Friend, if you are toying with sin, if you are flirting with attitudes or actions that you know God says are wrong, then you are literally opening up the door and welcoming Satan in to destroy your soul. That's, I'm not kidding. When Paul says put on the breastplate of righteousness, he is exhorting you, he is charging you to not open that door, but instead to pursue a life that is holy as God is holy and righteous as God is righteous. Why? Because that will protect you from the evil one who's doing everything he can to get you to run the opposite direction. All right? You don't win a football game by sitting on the 50-yard line. What do you do? You score. Okay? There's a role for defense, but you don't win without an offense. All right? And Paul's exhorting us here to put on the breastplate of righteousness, to, to recognize lies like, oh, come on, it's not that serious. You just had a good time. Nobody got hurt. Just some buds with the bros. Come on, man, I'm, I'm just looking at her the way every other red-blooded male would look at her. It's not like I'm really cheating. I'm just getting help from a friend. I know he's not a believer, but man, he's, he's really cute. And who knows, maybe if we get closer, he'll, he'll decide to come to church. No, 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 no. No, I am not gossiping or slandering. I'm just sharing a prayer request of a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend. Now we laugh, some more than others. But friend, I want you to know that those little moments, those little decisions, ethical decisions, those are the points where you decide, am I going to resist the schemes of the devil or am I going to open the door? Because if you think like I just talked, believe those lies, you're opening the door. Okay, so praise God. Let's be very clear on this. Praise God for the verdict of judicial righteousness that we have received through faith in Christ. We sang about that before the throne of God above. I have a what? Strong and perfect plea, righteousness of Christ, right? Zechariah 3, give him a clean turban. And yet, yet, If you don't choose to become what you already are in Christ, righteous as he's righteous, holy as he's holy, then you won't stand against the devil's schemes. Practice righteousness, Kingsway. Not so so you can feel better than other people or, or look better than other people to other people, but so that you can stand against the devil. All right? Don't give him a foothold. Don't open the door. You wouldn't do that for any enemy. And yet we unknowingly do that all the time when we choose to flirt with sin 
instead of chasing righteousness. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. All right? Number three. Third means we stand firm. As shoes for your feet, as shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, I hope you know what I'm going to do here. Okay? I'm not just going to start talking about what Matthew thinks the gospel of peace is or the readiness is. What what are we going to do? We're going to let Paul define that for us by saying where else in Ephesians, just like we did with truth, just like we did with righteousness, where else in Ephesians has Paul talked about the gospel of peace? Well, thankfully, it's been all over the place in Ephesians, all right? And what we've learned thus far about the gospel, if there's one thing Paul's made clear, is that it's God's design for Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, uniting all things in Christ. That's what the gospel is up to. It's uniting all things in Christ. Well, Matthew, how is God uniting all things in Christ? Well, he is reconciling man to God through Christ, and he's reconciling man to man through Christ. Peace with God overflowing in peace with man, which, by the way, side note, had a whole lot to say about the way Jews and Gentiles related together and a whole lot to say about our own struggles with racism today. The gospel unifies. It brings peace. It brings peace. Now, having said that, what I think might be less clear to some of us today, I hope that much is clear, what may be less clear is the connection between the peace that the gospel brings and this readiness for spiritual warfare. Okay, Matthew, I'm tracking with the fact the gospel brings peace with God, with man. What does that have to do with readiness for spiritual warfare? Okay, well, I want to linger on this point for a minute. I want to linger here, so listen carefully. Friend, there's a confidence. There is a steadiness. There is a surety of soul that is only experienced by those who know the gift of peace with God. God made you to know him. He made you for relationship with him. He made you to enjoy a growing relationship with him. And and absent that relationship, you are never going to have peace. Now, when you were at the beach last week, you may have felt peace. But why was that? Because you checked out from life. But now you're back. And after Labor Day, you're really back. (laughs) Where's your peace going to come from now? You you can't live on perpetual vacation as much as your financial advisor might say that that's the end goal of your life. The only way you will ever experience true enduring peace is through enjoying a growing relationship with God. It's the only place it comes from. What, What did the angels say when they announced the birth of Christ in Luke 2? Glory to God in the highest and on earth what? Peace. Peace among those with whom he's pleased. So, so I, I want to charge some of you listening to me to, to look well to the condition of your soul. Look well to the condition of your soul because if you don't know the blessing of peace with God, it very well might be because you have never actually come to faith in Christ. Maybe you've come to church, but that doesn't mean you've come to Christ. And if you haven't come to Christ, I exhort you with the words of Peter in Acts 3. Repent, therefore, and turn again. Friend, turn today. Turn right now away from your sin and to Christ. That your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. If you don't turn to Christ, you are never going to have confidence, peace, or security in the battle against the enemy of your soul. Why? Because the king's armor is only for the subjects of the king. And if you're not submitted to him, if you're not gladly aligning your life with his rule and his redemptive reign, then you have no armor whatsoever. You know, sometimes, having said that, I think there are these situations, and I've seen this, where we lack an awareness of peace with God, Um, Not because we're not a Christian, but because we struggle with an assurance of salvation. 
You know, maybe you look back on a time when, when you knew God was pleased with you, your faith in Christ was strong, but, but now if you're honest, and I was talking to you after the meeting today, uh, you might tell me that you're just not so sure. You're not so sure. Well, friend, if that's you, I, I want to challenge you, challenge you to remember that peace with God is not the product of your fleeting emotions. Praise Jesus, it's not, okay? Peace with God is not the product of our subjective emotions. Peace with God is an objective gift through the gospel. Okay, it says implications, all right? Let, let's think about this, okay? Paul doesn't say, put on the readiness given by an internal sense of peace. Praise God he doesn't say that. What's he say? Put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. What does that tell us? That tells us that peace doesn't originate with anything inside of you or anything that you can buy with your money or anything that you can find in this life or any place you can travel. Peace, real peace, comes from God and God alone, objectively. And even more importantly, just as importantly, this gift of peace from God through the gospel, friend, if you struggle with assurance of salvation, please hear this. That's not a gift that comes and goes. Okay? So, our awareness of the gift, oh yeah, that comes and goes all the time <laughs> for various reasons. That's another sermon. <laughs> but, the actual presence of the gift isn't dependent on your awareness of the gift. Why? Because the works and effects of the gospel don't depend on your awareness of the works and effects of the gospel. What do they depend on? They stand firm, fixed, and unchanging, dependent on Christ. Which means, even when your struggle with assurance is at its greatest, no matter how high the waves or how deep the valleys, there's a rock beneath your feet right now that cannot be moved, and his name is Jesus. Okay, or as Jesus himself said, John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace, Christian, struggling with assurance, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. What does that mean? Jesus isn't peace, Oh, sorry, too much. Peace. Uh, my turn. Peace. <laughs> Psych out. No, no. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. So why? When I've given you peace, let not your hearts be troubled, nor let them be afraid. Friend, you'll never be ready to resist the works and effects of Satan if you're not confident in the works and effects of the gospel. Chief among them, peace with God. Peace with God. Now, Last thing I want us to see about this readiness of the gospel of peace. We need to recognize that this too has a defensive and an offensive component. I've just I've got all sorts of football analogies. Like this is just that time of year when every so many guys, it's like all you think about, right? So, so there's a defensive, there's an offensive component to this readiness of the gospel of peace. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that the gospel of peace doesn't just make us ready to hold our ground, defense, no matter what schemes Satan throws our way. Though it does, it makes us ready to hold our ground. I know, I'm confident, I'm secure, I'm going to be okay, no matter what he throws at me right now, because I've got peace with God. That is huge. Defense. All right? And yet, there's an offensive component here. The, the readiness of the gospel of peace it points to the fact that the gospel of peace is what makes us ready to march forward. Ready to take ground, as it were, for the kingdom of God through the proclamation of the gospel by telling people who either have never heard of Jesus or haven't trusted in Jesus that there is a God in heaven who has made a way through Christ for them to be at peace with him. All right? That's offense. Okay? And if you're not putting on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in an offensive sense, then here's what's going to happen when your captain, King Jesus, points to you as he does in Matthew 28 and says, go make disciples on the field. Now, go. 
Here, here's what's going to happen. If you haven't put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, right? You're going to look at your spouse. You're going to look at your kids. You're going to look at your neighbor, your coworker, or a messy conflict in your church. Those would never happen. And you're going to say, there's no way. There's no way. There's no way the peace of God will ever come to that person or situation. They are too far gone. Too many years of trouble. Forget it. Maybe you've thought that about a person or a relationship or a church or whatever. Friend, I warn you, you linger there and you are waving a white flag to the evil one. You're waving a white flag, which he's all too happy to accept, but, but there's an alternative, okay? There's a path of victory, a path of victory that says, I see that sin, I see that brokenness. You know, Lord, I feel that hurt, but I see something else too. I see a God who says to me, is anything too hard for me? He wants to say that to some of you this morning. Is anything, is anything too hard for me? Anything too hard for me? There's a confidence that comes to fight in the kingdom of God, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in broken relationships and messy situations when you have put on the gospel of peace. Listen to Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, offense, your God reigns. The voice of the watchman, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. Break forth into singing? Yeah, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. That's the kind of stuff you say when you have put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Isaiah lived in a time and a land of no peace. To the contrary. And yet he could say, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. Why? Because he didn't just see the mess. He saw the promise of a God who says, through the gospel, I am eternally committed to unifying and bringing peace to all things through Christ. We have to follow his example. Put on that readiness. Last point. Last piece of armor we'll look at today. The shield of faith. Shield of faith. Belt of truth. Breastplate of righteousness. Shoes of the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, Paul says, all circumstances take up the shield of faith. Now what is faith? What is faith? Hebrews 11.1. 1, the assurance of things hoped for. The convictions of things not seen. Does that mean that faith is blind trust? Does that mean that faith is a leap into the dark? No. No. Faith, biblical faith, is informed reliance and rational trust. Formed reliance and rational trust. Why? Because it responds to the truth of God's word, and in particular, to the reasons God has given us in his word to believe and trust him. It says, Lord, in light of the reasons that you have given me in your word to believe and trust you, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. It's informed reliance. It's rational trust. Don't let, Christian, a friend who doesn't know the Lord, say to you, I just don't get your blind leap of faith. There is nothing blind about your leap of faith. And by the way, it's not a leap, it's a gift. So, all that to say, all that to say, don't think, don't think that when you become a Christian or decide to follow Jesus, that you exchange your mind for your heart. Okay? Biblical faith is informed. It's rational. Heart, mind, together. Okay? God's given us 
reason after reason to trust him. And I just noted a couple of these very briefly, all right? Why do we trust what God says in his word is true? Well, one, because we're talking about a book filled with eyewitness testimony. Okay, two, we're talking about a book that corresponds at point after point to historical and archaeological reality. Okay, we're talking about a book that has been faithfully transmitted century after century from language to language, culture to culture, for many years. All right, we're talking about a book that makes prophecies that we can look back on recorded history and say, no kidding. It was right. <laughs> they came true. All right, and ultimately, we're talking about a book that authenticates its own authority through the power of the Holy Spirit as it's read and proclaimed. Right? And, and if that's not enough for you to see the reasons for faith, then, then what are you going to do with the lives of millions of men and women who have been radically changed, radically changed, as they have encountered King Jesus in the pages of Scripture? Reasons for faith. Reasons for faith, okay? I'm not saying that we believe because it corresponds to what we can understand, all right? That would be to put our reason over the revelation of God's word, okay? We know this word is true ultimately because it says that it's true. That's critical. But we don't jettison our mind to exercise our faith. We trust what God says in his word, all right? And when we do that, when we trust what God says, when we believe his word, we, as it were, we take up a shield, by which Paul says, we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, this was fascinating for me to learn about. The Roman soldiers carried a shield that was about four feet tall, two and a half feet wide, made of wood, but then they would cover it with canvas and skin, now, why covered in canvas and skin? I mean, you just take a sword and, huh, canvas, sorry. You know, that's no good. Well, they would cover it with canvas and skin because before a battle, they would soak it in water. And then when they marched into battle and the archers on the other side would dip their arrows in flaming tar and shoot them and try to light their shields on fire, why would you want to light a shield on fire? So you throw it away and you stand there and get hit, right? Well, when the arrow would hit that shield that had been soaked, go out. We go out. We go out. What looked like an unbelievably intimidating threat, just picture hundreds of flaming arrows. Out. Gone. Extinguished. Friend, recognize in that the encouragement of the Lord. He's saying to us through that, that picture, he's Paul's communicating through that metaphor, that when you exercise faith in the word of God, when you choose to believe that what God says is true, because he's given you good reasons to do so, that the lies that the evil one would whisper to you or make attractive in your eyes, why don't you just try a little bit of that? Those things can be extinguished. Extinguished, put out. When you exercise faith, and the word of God, you have the ability through Christ to extinguish, shut down the lies of the evil one. Shut them down. All right? Now, I want to give you some examples of this, okay? What am I talking about? What, what does this shut down look like? Well, say you're thinking, or say you hear in your head, you don't have to love her. I mean, let's be honest, buddy, your wife is critical of everything you do and say. I mean, why don't you just give her a little taste of her own medicine? Matthew 5, faith says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Oh yeah, I'm all over that. But I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Okay, faith believes that word and loves an enemy. Or maybe you've heard in your head, do, do you really think, do you really think God wants you to be generous in your giving this month? I mean, you don't even know how you're going to pay the rent. 
Why don't you just hold the check and, you know, one day you'll have some financial freedom. I'm sure God will understand. What does faith say to that? Malachi 3, Kevin read it. Bring the full tithe in and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord. If I won't open the windows of heaven for you and pour out a blessing till there's no more need. That's the shield going up. All right? Here's another flaming dart. If God really loved me, why would he allow all these bad things to keep happening to me? It feels like my life is falling apart and God is just MIA everywhere. What does faith say? Shield. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, soul, we will not fear. Soul, don't fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God's in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. What am I doing? All I'm doing is trying to show you that when those darts come in, which are almost always in the form of lies in our mind that we think, you have a shield of truth that is more than capable of pushing back and extinguishing all of them. All of them. And so as I charged you at the beginning, friend, if you don't know God's word, you won't have any shield to hold up. Okay? We're, we're back to the belt of truth. All right? In a couple weeks, we're going to talk about the sword of the Spirit, which Paul says is the word of God. What, what's the point? What's the point? The arrows might fall fast and thick, but if you stand firm in faith on what God says is true, you're going to be just fine. You're going to be just fine. All right? But you have to exercise your faith. Okay? The Christian life is not the easy level in a video game where whenever you get shot at, you know, the, the shield comes up. Well, that was pretty cool. No, no, it's not. You have to exercise your faith. You have to hold up that shield. But with faith the size of a mustard seed, you can prevail. That's the good news. All right? Take up the whole armor of God. Why? Because those who stand in the strength that God supplies will triumph over every evil power. I want to conclude by reading again from Pilgrim's Progress. Because there's a selection where Polyon has assailed Christian with this, this long list of all his sins, all his failings. He's just reminding this poor guy of all the ways that he's failed to follow King Jesus. All right? And then Christian replies. Listen to this. Apollyon, all of this is true. And much more, which you've left out. <laughs> right, remember the picture. Apollyon is reminding Christian of all the ways that he's sinned, all the ways that he's failed, all the ways that he hasn't been true to his master, King Jesus. And what's Christian say? All of this is true, and you've left a lot out. But the prince whom I serve is merciful and ready to forgive. Praise God. But besides, these infirmities possessed me in your country. For there I sucked them in, and I've groaned under them. I've been sorry for them, and I have obtained pardon from my prince. What's he doing? Shield of faith, right? Then Apollyon broke out into a grievous rage, saying, I am an enemy to this prince. I hate his person, his laws, and his people. I'm out here to withstand you. Prepare to die. You go no further. I will spill thy soul. And with that, he threw a flaming dart at his breast. But Christian had a shield in his hand with which he caught it and so prevented the danger of that. Then did Christian draw, for he saw it was time to bestir him, his sword. 
And Apollyon, as fast, made at him, throwing darts as thick as hail, by the which, notwithstanding all that Christian could do to avoid it, Apollyon wounded him in his head, his hand, and foot. This made Christian give a little back. Apollyon, therefore, followed his work again. Christian again took courage and, and resisted as manfully as he could. The sore combat lasted for above half a day, even till Christian was almost quite spent. For you must know that Christian, by reason of his wounds, must needs grow weaker and, and weaker. And then Apollyon, espying his opportunity, began to gather up close to Christian and, and wrestling with him gave him a dreadful fall. And with that, Christian's sword flew out of his hand. Then said Apollyon, I am sure of thee now. And with that, he had almost pressed him to death. So that Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was fetching his last blow, thereby to make a full end of this good man, Christian nimbly reached out his hand for his sword, caught it, saying, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. Where's that from? The book of Micah. When I fall, fall he did. I shall arise. And with that, he gave him a deadly thrust, which made him give back as one that had received his mortal wound. Christian, perceiving that, made at him again, saying, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And with that, Apollyon spread forth his wings, sped away, and Christian saw him no more. Lord Jesus, I pray that that would be our experience as a church. I ask that this week you would help us to do what we are about to pray through song and to put on your armor. Thank you for the belt of truth. Thank you for grace, power through the gospel to put on a breastplate of, of righteousness, of holiness. Thank you for the readiness for defense, for offense that the gospel of peace brings us. And Lord, thank you for the shield of faith. Oh Lord, stir up our faith that we might stand firm. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.